0: When I, for the longest time growing up, for the longest time growing up for me, I had no idea that the rules of my house, the rules that my parents set were different from other parents, different from other homes. And so my bedtime, when I was in third grade, do you know what my bedtime was? Eight o'clock. When I was in fifth grade, fifth grade, do you know what my bedtime was? Eight o'clock. When I was in seventh grade, do you know what my bedtime was? Eight o'clock. It was in seventh grade that I discovered that all my friends were getting to stay up until ten o'clock. And I threw a fit, and my parents were like, okay. <laughs> and by then, I was already in seventh grade, and I had missed out. At some point, we've all realized that our rules are the rules in our home are different from someone else's and that someone else's has it better or someone else has it worse. So, for example, in my house, we have a rule, you can't date till you're 16. My nine-year-old thinks it's the stupidest rule ever. My 15-year-old is like, oh, this is great. And every time a boy comes around, it's like, oh, she goes, I'm sorry, my dad, my stupid father has this lame rule, I just can't date till I'm 16, Sorry. <laughs> so I don't mind the rule either. It's the, same with, it's the same with teachers. You've had a teacher. I taught for eight years at Asbury University, and I never graded for grammar. I didn't grade for grammar because I didn't want to have a bad experience. And I didn't have that much red ink. Okay? And so I would tell them at the start of class, I just want you to make a coherent thought. Just... You know, coherence, it's all I ask for. Make an argument, sustain it. Try really hard at this. You can do this. I believe in you. But I'm not going to grade for grammar. There, are other, there is a prophet, Asbury, right now who is known as the grammar Nazi. You turn in, pay, I won't say which department because this is put online, but he knows who he is, okay? And no, he's not in the room today, okay? <laughs> he's not in the room today. You will get your paper back, and you will get docked letter grades for grammar, Grammar Nazi. Okay? And you've seen this. You've turned in papers late for some profs and then other profs. Every hour it's a letter grade until, like, you know, the fourth hour. You're like, well, why bother? Okay? The same thing is true at work. I had a boss and we called her Schizo Boss. Schizo Boss. This, this was my life. One day. I'm sorry, I didn't know, Max, that we were friends. It's Miss So and So. Yes, ma'am. Five days later, what are you yes mammy me for? What, am I your mother? Am I over 65? It's Julie. Yes, Julie. (laughs) (laughs) We were all scared to death of Julie because you never knew. You could do something five days in a row and on day six, off with your head for doing the thing she told you to do. So we called her schizo boss. Okay? I had another boss that was so fun, like his mantra was, hey, we're going to work hard, but we're going to have fun doing it. And anytime you needed off, like uh, I remember in the early days when Jenny was pregnant, if I had anything that I needed to go with Jenny to the doctor, he'd be like, what are you doing here at work? You need to go. Go be with your wife. It's no problem. We got this. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, oh, that's so awesome. Thank you. I feel so supported. Totally different. Totally different. Okay. All of us know what it's like to live under the rule of somebody, okay? And I want you to have that in mind because today I want to talk to you about the rule of God. Believe it or not, the rule of God is a very important part of the gospel. It is. Now, in case you missed last week, I have a helpful summary, and they'll put my little euangelion up on the big screen. Gospel comes from this Greek word euangelion, and and euangelion. Boom, there it is. It means simply gospel or good news. I'm going to break that word apart for you grammar nerds. Some of you that went to seminary like, yes. Okay, all right, don't hold your excitement, okay? The first part of euangelion is you. It's where we get the words eulogy. That's when somebody dies and you don't talk about what a scoundrel they are. You just, they were a loving father and, you know, okay, eulogy. That's also where we get the word euphemism. You know what a euphemism is if you've ever had a medical procedure or gotten medical care, right? You go in and somebody in scrubs says to you, oh, sir, ma'am, there will be some slight discomfort. (laughs) And then they stick a four-inch needle into your belly hoping not to get your spinal column and suck it. And you're like, I didn't know my spleen could go through that little opening. (laughs) Okay, can I have it back, please? Okay, slight discomfort, euphemism, meaning It sounds better than it really is, okay? So that's the first part of the word, which is where we get good, okay? It also has a second part, and that's the other one, angelion or angelios, angel, angels. It's where we get the word angel. The primary job of an angel is to do what? Deliver news, deliver news. They're messengers. So really, gospel is good message, So it's kind of a little ironic when an angelos appears and says to the shepherds, I have evangelion. It's kind of like a play on words. But at any rate, it's good message, okay? So this this gospel has to do with the arrival of God's kingdom. So today I want to talk to you about the content of the Bible. So last week I wanted you to know that the gospel, the earliest Christians thought and understood that it was news. Something happened that you needed to know about. It's good news. And so this week and next week, I'm going to do my best to kind of help you understand the content of the gospel. So what is this good news that they wanted people to get, to understand, that was so important they felt they needed to tell everybody about it? And the first part of that has to do with the arrival of God's kingdom, the arrival of God's rule in His reign, and it's the one big theme. God's kingdom, by the way, is the one big theme. Theme that takes the Old and New Testament and pew, merges it together like Mentos and Coke. Okay, just pew, okay. Kingdom is Old Testament and the New Testament. So, in the Old Testament, the prophets were promising all the time. There is a day of the Lord coming, a day of the Lord when the reign and rule of God will come and it will be plain to everyone and everyone will see the rule of God. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, uh, he says this, and it's in Matthew 3, 2. Let me see if I can get there before they get there. Ah, they beat me. Okay, John the Baptist says this, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is near. It's near. It's at hand. It's, it's almost the prophet Isaiah was speaking of this. when, And uh, behold, there's a voice crying out in the wilderness. So John is saying, this kingdom, this, this kingdom is about to happen. It's about to break into history. You're about to experience it, okay? When Jesus starts teaching, he... Preaches the same message. So if you go to Mark uh, 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, some people try to spiritualize the kingdom of God. They'll say things like, the kingdom of God is in your heart. I feel like I want a fluffy pillow that's kind of red and furry. The kingdom of God is in your heart. They'll say, the kingdom of God is the church. And whenever you see the church doing that, it's the kingdom of God. Sometimes they'll say, the kingdom of God is heaven. It's someday, one day. It's going to come. It's going to be awesome, kingdom of God. Sometimes they'll say, the kingdom of God is, they'll identify it with a moral issue. The kingdom of God means we don't drink. I have to do my church you know, lady voice when I think of how they <laughs> reduce and spiritualize the kingdom of God. you have to pardon me. Okay, so, but early Christians didn't think of the kingdom of God that way. The Jews didn't think of the kingdom of God that way. For them, it was the active, dynamic exercise of God's rule in the world. You're like, you got that from a dictionary. Yes, I did. It was simply God's rule coming to play in the world. And they were excited about it. In Hebrew, it's the word malkut, which simply means rule or reign. In the Greek, it's basileia, basileia, which means rule, reign. Okay, you're getting the idea? It's the rule of God in the world. Now, Jesus preached on this regularly. In Luke 17, he says this. One day, the Pharisees asked Jesus, When will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, oh, here it is. Oh, it's over there. The kingdom of God is already among you. It's among you because I'm the king and I'm among you. It's right here, right in front of your eyes. And so this is a very important part of the gospel, the arrival of God's kingdom. Jesus is actually criticized for this, um, the Jews get upset, the religious leaders, and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, your disciples, they're not fasting like they should. You tell them not to eat this week. Tell them, Jesus, they should fast. We all fast. They're not fasting. And Jesus says to them, No, they're not going to fast because the bridegroom's here. The messianic king is here. Of course, they're not going to fast. They're going to feast. The king's here, baby. It's a party. It's like Mike LeSage, he says, the kingdom of God is a party, okay? That's what Jesus said in his teaching, okay? And if that wasn't enough in Luke 11, they go after him because they're like, Jesus, you're casting out demons, and we know you can only do that because you're working for Satan. And Jesus goes and replies to them. This is Luke 11, verse 20. Jesus says, look. If I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. If you're seeing demons go, poo, there's an under indicator of kingdom of God. Okay, so you're kind of getting this now, right? Right. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God all the time. How many, if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how many times does Jesus' teaching begin with, the kingdom of God is like... A mustard seed, a lost coin, treasure hidden in a field, two sons. I mean, I could go on and on. The kingdom of God is like. And in Luke 15, he kind of brings it to a head. He, it's, a, it's like a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And he's saying the kingdom of God is so important that people will abandon everything in pursuit of it. So there's something about this kingdom that's so important you want to pursue it with reckless abandon. Sounds pretty important, doesn't it? And yet, we know from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that people had a tendency to respond one of three ways. One way people responded to the arrival of the kingdom of God was they were troubled. They were threatened. Another group of people responded to the arrival of the kingdom of God with largely indifference. Oh, yeah, another one of them messianic figures. Hey, honey, where are we going to go for lunch? Cool. (laughs) Another group of people were ready. They were ready for the arrival of the kingdom of God. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in Jesus' birth, and we see it in Herod, in the religious leaders, and in the wise men. All right? Now, we know a lot about Herod, not from the Bible, but from history. Herod was one messed up guy. love Herod. I love studying Herod. Like he is, uh, what's that, is it Game of Thrones, right? He is one ruthless, messed up guy, okay? So Rome had this deal. You could become what was called a client ruler. A client ruler would get to become king or queen, And you ruled under Caesar. But you had to do two things. You had to squelch any rebellion or dissension. And you had to make sure the tax money made its way to Rome. If you did those two things, you could do pretty much anything you wanted. Herod was so ruthless. He had several wives, and he had a favorite wife. A woman he actually loved. And he had her killed. He had her killed because he was convinced that she was conspiring with one of his sons to get his throne. He also had that son killed and a couple other sons, too. Like, he murdered his. Is this beginning to sound like HBO? Okay. It is. Herod was ruthless. Absolutely ruthless. If you brought your Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 2. That's actually where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 2. Just out of curiosity. How many of you have ever worked for a Herod? <laughs> okay, they're out there, aren't they? Or lived under a Herod? In the, in the big ice storm in Lexington, remember the big one where like everybody in Kentucky but like only 100,000 people had no power? I mean, there was only this little sliver of Kentucky that had power. It was devastating. I mean, the police and government officials were like, stay home. Don't go out. It's terrible out there. I had this friend that worked for this company, which I, again, will not name because they put these online. And he was mid-level management, and he called his team and said, hey, stay home. Take care of your family. Don't worry about this. An hour later, his His boss calls him from work. Hey, where are you? "Uh, They told us to stay off the roads. Yeah, no, you need to come in. We're going to get this done. Where are your people? I told them they should stay home. You know, have you seen the news? (laughs) You know, the police, this, I'm not making this up. You know what this man told my friend? Tell them to get here. I own them. That summer he quit and moved to North Carolina. (laughs) He got a different job. Okay, so there are some Herods out there. All right, Matthew chapter 2, and we'll just go through this passage um, starting in verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We, we saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. Now, to dispel some myths, these wise men, they're not kings. There are probably more than three of them. It's a large caravan. We typically assume there are three wise men because they give Jesus three gifts, and we go, Oh, there were three of them big caravan. Um, they also didn't arrive the night of Jesus' birth. They, they arrived several months later. But again, if you ever run a Christmas, Christmas pageant and you tell the pageant director, can't have wise men, you know, that never plays out well. So we just go with it, okay? We just go with it, okay? But facts. that's kind of, that's what, so those, those are some disclaimers. So these magi, though, come all the way from, if here's Israel, they come from the, what was ancient Babylon. The Jews, when their nation was captured, they were deported into captivity, a large number of them, to Babylon. And even when they could return back to Israel, a lot of them living in Babylon chose to stay. They had been there 70 years. They had gotten jobs. Their kids had married off. I mean, they had a life. Why would they go back to Jerusalem, okay? And so, among that Jewish community in Babylon, they circulated the stories of the prophets, that someday this God's rule would come, the day of the Lord, when God himself would claim his rightful place as king of his people. And, and the magi, these Babylonian wise men who studied the movements of the stars, were aware of this, and boom, a star appears, so they journey to Jerusalem, the capital for the Jews, to figure out what's going on. Where do we need to go? Where do we need to look? We saw a star. You guys have been waiting for this for a long time. So let's pick it up, verse 3 and following. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of the religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel." Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, come back and tell me so that I can worship him too. Sounds sincere, doesn't he? (laughs) Well, let me ask you a question. You're smart people. What do you think, Herod? Do you think he's sincere? No. No, he's not sincere. Okay? So Herod is troubled. There's a... The word used there uh, indicates he's, he's greatly distressed. I mean, and so uh, everyone in the city, if you could put those verses back up there. So Herod is greatly distressed. He's angry. He's fearful. He had to apply and be approved to become a client, ruler, king. And these people show up from what was ancient Babylon, and they're saying, Oh, yeah, you know all those promises from the prophets? We've seen the star. Where can we find your king? Right. We all know how this is going to play out. So if Herod is troubled, the religious leaders are indifferent. He goes to the religious leaders, the people who know these promises from the Old Testament, who know to expect the arrival of the king. Do they send a delegation to Bethlehem to go investigate? No. Do they do anything? No. Indifference. Yeah, yeah. He's, when the king comes, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks. Looked it up. You're welcome, Herod. Woo, have a nice day. Let's get on with business. So, you've got Herod who's troubled. You have the religious leaders who are indifferent. By the way, they don't stay indifferent. By the time... Jesus has two or three years of ministry under his belt of teaching and preaching. And everyone's like, this guy's awesome. They decide they had had enough. And the high priest voicing what was a commonly held opinion says, without realizing he's kind of prophesying, says, you know what, guys? Listen, boys. Better that one person die than Rome kick us all out. Go get this Jesus. We're done with him. So, troubled and indifferent, but the wise men take a different trajectory, and that's verse 9 and following. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, And When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. They gave Jesus gifts that would sustain his family for years to come. They worshipped. The gospel accounts are full of people like the Magi who were ready to worship and follow. Zacchaeus, the guy in the tree, the scoundrel of Jericho who had cheated people out of their tax money meets and encounters Jesus and then gives away the lion's share of his wealth to the poor and pays back what he had stolen from the residents of Jericho. The woman at the well, who despite being quite sexually active and having a complicated set of relationships, does the same thing. Person after person, Mary Magdalene, the twelve disciples, there were people who were ready to worship. Herod, though, was not one of them. Let's pick it up in verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I've called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead." He's furious. He's enraged. He is blinded by his fear that someone will take his throne. And so he orders his soldiers into Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys. Years later, in that same region, Jesus would return as a preaching itinerant rabbi, announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. And among those crowds would be women and men who had lost a son years earlier. I bring you good news of the arrival of God's kingdom. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who do you identify with most in this story? With Herod? With the religious leaders? Or with the Magi? For some of you, come on, for some of you, you don't want to admit it, but like Herod... The word Jesus, the word church, the word Christianity, you're angry. You wouldn't prefer the word bitter, but you've been hurt. Your dad, that pastor, those Christians, that boss. And when Jesus comes up, you feel the fire in your belly. And you just, you just want to tell them. Can I ask you a question based on just one character trait? Of Herod and Jesus, based on how they treated children, who would you rather be king? Who would you rather have in charge of the world? Herod slaughtered them in Bethlehem. Jesus said, No, 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 bring the little children to me. And his followers then went to the waste dumps of the first and second, third century bringing and rescuing the abandoned children that nobody wanted. Again, who would you rather have in charge of the world? For some of you, like the religious leaders, right? You're indifferent. You would say to me today, look, I appreciate this, Max. I've heard 20 sermons on the Magi. Thank you. Got another one. 21 today, baby. Woo! Okay? And... You are like, I've heard this, yay, Jesus stuff, but you know what? Ho-hum. I've known people that did the whole, oh, they got born again, and years later, they're just like the rest of us. It didn't make any difference at all. May I ask you a question? Is that what the world needs more of? Indifference and apathy? Is that what your wife needs, your kids need? When you're in line at that government agency that was designed to help people, and the lady behind the counter says, look, I could care less, is that what the world needs more of? No. For some of you, you're ready. You're ready. Like the magi, and there are people in this room, you've given up a relationship, you've lost income or a job you walked away from a degree like the wise men who left their home and traveled many many miles you've given up things and the thought that jesus is coming back sits well with you and if you were pressed you would say you know what if he wants to come back today let me check my calendar that's awesome sold his kingdom his way that sounds good to me thank you very much I want to simply close with these words of Jesus that are found in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says this. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. I would suggest to you this morning that this world has enough Herods. You've worked for some of them. It has enough people who are indifferent. This world needs people who are ready to worship and follow.